Hey everyone, welcome to episode 2 of the Movement Science Podcast. I'm your host, Ricky Singh, and with me today is creator of Functional Anatomy Seminars, Dr. Andrea Spino. The Functional Anatomy Seminars include functional range release and functional range conditioning. I've had the pleasure of taking all of your courses, Doc, and except FRC, and I can say with confidence that they have had a significant impact on my clinical decision making. Um, in this episode, we'll be dissecting Dr. Spina's clinical thought process as well as his opinion on various therapeutic interventions. How are you doing today, Doc? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Ricky. Good, man. Thanks again for taking the time out today for this podcast. I know you're a busy guy, so we'll jump right in. Sure. So by now, I'm sure majority of our listeners have heard of and are familiar with the FAP and FR system. The FRC system is fairly new, so can you tell us a bit about FRC, how it came about, and how it fits into the other two systems as a whole? Yeah, pretty much um, the FRC system um, came out as an extension of the FR release system, which is the the system I use for my therapeutic, therapeutic interventions. Um, why it came about is because I, with the FR system, I try to look at everything stemming from... Um, anatomic palpation to anatomic assessment, treatment, and then rehabilitation. And then I, I've always felt that there has been a gap between uh, the rehabilitative process and the training process. So the way I see it, the rehabilitative process is intended to bring a person back to a state that they were before. So you have a tissue that's been damaged, it's been ruptured, or whatever it is. You're trying to bring that tissue back to a state where it was prior to the injury, and then we put people right into training. But the, the question that I always had was, is that if, if they got the injury while training, then what was not functioning or what was the problem that led to that injury beforehand? If we bring people back to a state that they were before the injury and then get them to train again, who's to say that that injury is not going to come back? So FRC originally um, was intended to bridge the gap between rehab and training. So to take a rehabilitated patient and prepare them for the, the, the loads that are sustained during uh, training. Um, so basically the, the, the main focus of FRC is to expand functional range of motion while simultaneously safeguarding the ranges that person has as well as the newly acquired ranges against injury during training and competition. So. I mean, it's kind of been, uh, if you look online, there's videos of people doing crazy movement drills and things like that. So it's kind of been skewed into thinking that FRC is, is a, a movement training system. It's absolutely not a movement training system. It's a system that is intended to prepare the body for the strenuous tasks that occur during uh, training or during athletic performance. And that can be applied to any individual or athlete or anybody at all absolutely doesn't matter the sport it doesn't matter the 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 intent of the movements that you want to perform it's preparing you for movements in general and it's kind of taking a step back and i always use the example um for example now hand balancing has become a very popular thing to do everyone wants to do handstands for whatever reason so what do people do they tend to go and find a progressive a progression of exercises that'll allow them to do handstands. So what they, they'll go on YouTube, handstand progression exercises. Inevitably, the first one's going to be put your hands on the ground, kick yourself up onto a wall. Now, there's a problem with this because nobody has looked at the wrist and the load-bearing capacity of the wrist tissues. Does your wrist have the necessary prerequisite ranges of motion that would be needed in order to do a handstand. 
Further, does that very small articulation called the wrist have enough load-bearing capacity to be able to sustain all of your body weight being flung onto it? And that's where people, um, they started missing things. So they started to jump the gun. So when hand balancing became more popular, what happened in my clinical practice? I got more people in with wrist injuries. And the reason is, is because they never hit the prerequisites. The way I see it, every movement, every exercise has a prerequisite. And the prerequisite has to do with, do your articulations have the capacity to perform the movement? And do they have the capacity to perform the movement under load? And if you don't have those prerequisites, you're going to get injured. For example, if you're front squatting and your knee can't get at least four or five inches in front of your toes at the, at the basement of a squat, you're, in my book, not allowed to front squat. You have work to do. You have to gain the necessary prerequisites to be able to accomplish a movement unloaded first before you go ahead and put load. Mm-hmm. When people get injured when they're under load and, and I see that they can't do a movement unloaded, but they do it with load and they get injured, they really shouldn't be surprised. So FRC is looking to safely expand ranges of motion and while we're doing so we're trying to progressively adapt tissue to be able to bear more load so that when let's say neurological misfires occur and you have to rely on tissue resilience you have the tissue resilience in the ranges of motion where the load is being bared in order to prevent injury and that's 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 pretty much what FRC is looking to do using scientific principles. Right. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> you mentioned just now um, about how when you, when you see an individual deep squat, you want to have about four to five inches of the knee travel anteriorly from the, the feet itself. For, for a front squat. Yeah. For a front squat. Yeah. So uh, th- this has been beaten to death a lot, so we'll beat it, beat it up some more. Uh, for the, when the knees do travel past the toes in any in a back squat or front squat, does that make it more of a knee dominant motion? Are you putting more strain on the knees? Because you'll hear coaches often say, keep those knees, keep those knees behind the toes, yeah. push the butt back, and then drive down. Yeah. Um, what is your opinion on that? Well, first of all, for what you describe, you're describing a back squat and most likely a low bar back squat. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're doing a high bar squat, high bar back squat or a front squat, you can't keep them behind your toes. It's just gonna, it's just mm-hmm. really not possible under a great deal of load. But I think what what people have. Um, I don't say people, some people have a problem understanding is that the movements that you see during athletic events are various. You have situations where you're technically squatting off of a position where one foot is externally rotated to a certain degree, the knee is already over the toes, you know, the other leg is in a different position, whatever, whatever, and you're expected to be able to generate load and maintain tissue resilience, preventing all this stuff that you might not have prepared for in the gym. If you've always squatted with your knees behind your toes, then you're going to get very good at dealing with situations when your knees are behind your toes. You won't be good in situations when your knees are past your toes. And it's it's, it's, it's the basic fundamental law of specificity, which people have in their minds and they know the law, but they don't really apply it to training. If you are going to get in positions during your athletic event outside of the quote-unquote comfort range of that your you know the standards put forth in training if you've never trained those positions you're going to regret not training the position that you got injured in right. 
Now, do I think that someone should go right off the bat and start squatting with their knees, passing their toes, et cetera, et cetera? No, I don't. And I don't think people should start with front squats. It's just like I said before. I, I, do, I think most people have relatively the prerequisites you need for a, a back squat, but not a lot of people inherently have the prerequisites that I want to see for a front squat. So I'll indeed start with a back squat, but that doesn't mean I won't progressively get them into a front squat position. Same thing with neutral spine. You can train with your spine always maintaining a neutral spine. So you always have you know, that, that curve, shoulders back, or set scapula position. That's great. You're going to be really good in situations where you have set scapula and when you have neutral spine. Mm -hmm. But name me one athletic activity where you maintain a set scapula. Could you imagine trying to throw a baseball with a set scapula or trying to throw a punch? It doesn't happen. No. So the question is, did you train your system to deal with what's going to happen or did you train it to deal with, with a predetermined best position that, that is just imaginary? Mm -hmm. you, you watch any MMA event. I, I challenge anybody to maintain neutral spine as they're getting hip tossed onto the ground. Right. It's not going to happen. So... In, if you've never trained out of neutral spine, you will not have the resilience to be out of neutral spine and you're going to get hurt. Yeah. So I, th I think that all movements are open game for training yeah. so long as you have the prerequisites and you've progressively adapted your tissue to be able to handle the loads in those positions. Yeah, I think the last point is key. It's progressively loading, right? Yeah, I mean, we're not just jumping see, into these things. You're, yeah. Yeah. You'll see guys go into barefoot training right off the bat, and they don't allow the tissues to adapt, and then they get injuries, injuries right? It's so, amazing. I mean, what happened uh, recently where the, the people, what are those? Vibrams. Vibrams they yeah. get sued, and yeah, they were making Like, but I don't understand why, why someone would expect to be able to do something that they otherwise haven't done for years. So we, you know, people are born, we put them into, um, into shoes, and then those shoes get more and more cushiony, and then they want to wear Nike Air Jordan, so now you have air cushioning, and then they get older, they want a comfortable shoe, they, so they, their, their foot has been artificially supported for the first 30 years of their lives. Now somebody brings out Vibram shoes and they say, hey, try these and go running for 10K with no support. If I put someone into a Boston brace for 30 years yeah. and I took it off and I said, hey, deadlift 400 pounds, what's going to happen to their spine? Exactly. It's going to buckle. Yeah. So I don't know why people are surprised at those, at those results. Yeah. It's a, a shoe is something that we insert into human you know, behavior, but it, it, we never evolved with shoes. Huh. So it's not like our body knows what a shoe is or why it's there. It's just an artificial support. And if you artificially support the body, the body stops supporting itself. And, and it'll adapt to that. And it'll adapt to that. So we'll switch gears now and start talking a little bit more of your clin clinical decision making. So when a patient comes to see you, do you have a standard which you hold your patients to? So, for example, some clinicians will use range of motion testing or pain on palpation or like negative orthopedic tests. Um, so they use those standards to then guide their clinical decision making, see how far a patient has uh, gone away from their standard, and then they apply therapy and try to bring them back to that standard. So do you have a standard that you look, that you look for in your physical examination um, that allows you to determine this individual is dysfunctional or they're, not, they're healthy, not healthy? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's a standard. I, I look at things on a continuum. So I'll take the optimal functioning human, uh, be it, you know, maybe I, I would consider a gymnast to be pretty close to a really, really good functioning 
uh, human being. And then I think of a really bad functioning human being. And I place my patient on a continuum. Where do they fit on that continuum? So my job isn't necessarily to only find what's wrong with them. It's to find where they lie on this line. And then once I determine where they lie on the line, my job is always to push them towards the most elite best example of a human that you can possibly imagine, which in my mind is one that has great ranges of movement potential or ability to move, um, but good amounts of tissue resilience to be able to sustain loads in those ranges of motion. Mm. So I don't look at a chart where they fi- they give me the average range of motion. I'm always given this, this, you know, I'll show one of my clients has an amazing amount of dorsiflexion and I'll say this is my normal dorsiflexion. And some will say, well, what are you basing that normal on? Uh, You know, this person published a paper that said the average dorsiflexion is X amount of degrees. But you have to understand that when people take averages, they're taking the average of every expression of human beings from people who do absolutely nothing. They don't exercise. They eat horribly. They stray way far away from what a human is supposed to be doing. And then they take people who are at the elite of human performance and they get somewhere in the middle. So they give you a number. Let's just give the number 50. Mm. Now, what does 50 represent? It's not a goal. 50 is just a description of what they see. Or an average. Or an average. But that's not what normal is. For me, normal is as much range of motion as you have control over. And that's pretty much where I go with my assessment. I look to see... How much range do you have passively? But more importantly, how much of that range do you own? How much does your nervous system understand and know how to deal with in situations where you're moving and not thinking about the movement? So I don't know that there's a, a standard, mm-hmm. um, but I am, I am always comparing people to the highest level of, of, of performance right. that, 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 that I know of. Yeah. So for, when we're talking about prerequisites, so if, if you if a patient does come in, do you want to look at everyone's, say, overhead squat? Do you want to look at every single individual's cervical spine range of motion? I, I, is there I, a certain I, examination that is like standard, no matter what, you want to see this on every patient? Yeah, I go articulation by articulation. So I, I, have, a, I have a definition as to what I think a normal joint function should be. Mm-hmm. And the first job is to go through all of the joints and to make sure they're functioning normally. Now, my definition of normal might be different from other people's because for me, you can have a normal functioning joint that's inflexible and doesn't have a great deal of motion uh, nor a great deal of strength. When I say a joint is normal, I just mean that the mechanics of it function in a, in a way that's not causing any impingements it's not causing any pain. It's just a, a joint that it might not be optimal, but it's functioning relatively well. Then I'm gonna see where they are on the continuum that I was talking about, and I'm gonna keep pushing them towards optimal movement or optimal ability for each joint. Do I watch someone overhead squat? Do I watch someone uh, lunge? Do I watch someone do that? No, not necessarily, because when when you start to assess people in movement, there's too many variables to be able to keep under control. So what does the the newer research on movement tell us? If we read up on dynamic systems theory, for example, it tells us that 
when you do a movement, take a squat, if someone does one squat, the body is going to derive a plan, derive, sorry, a plan as to how the squat is going to be executed and it's going to execute that neurological pattern. But the next rep, the body will likely choose a completely different path with which to move. So with every repetition within the same individual, the pattern of neurological activity and how the movement is accomplished is different. And that's a good thing. They find that people who are better movers, they have more degrees of freedom. So for any particular motion, a great mover can select, they don't select, but their nervous system can select various different paths to achieve the same goal, which means that they are able to um, deal with more variables because movement is all about dealing with variables. You have a plan to do a squat, you execute the plan. As variables come in, let's say perturbations or irritations, pain, whatever come, whatever variable comes your way, yeah. you have to adapt to that variable. Right. Because the movement pattern is always changing, I'm not going to assess the movement, I'm going to assess the hardware. Do your articulations have the controlled range of motion, the load-bearing capacity to be able to deal with and handle upcoming variables? After we give the body the ability, each articulation the ability to do what it needs to do to, to achieve the motion, then it's a matter of practice the movement and just practice it in various ways and introduce more variables and get the body used to the variability. But for me to say, squat, let me see how you squat, it almost entails me having an understanding of the nervous system that nobody has and say, no, you should be using this muscle to accomplish this, or this muscle should have fired before this muscle. But what does the research say every time we look at testing where we think we find a pattern of neurological functioning, the research generally says that that pattern's not there. Right. And that's because the body doesn't work that way. The body constantly chooses new neurological plans to execute movement. So can I control the plans? No. What can I control? The hardware utilized during the plan execution. Yeah, yeah that's, that's that makes perfect sense. Um, for a normal joint, then do you have? You're saying that you had a definition for what a normal joint would be. Yeah. Um, and then there's one for an optimal joint. Uh, what would you What would you classify as a normal joint, just for the listeners? Okay, so it's a very simple concept, um, but when it's applied to everywhere in the body, it's you start to see how it. Well, I'll just explain it to you. So if I'm looking at the range of motion of our articulation, I'm always looking to ensure that the rate-limiting tissue for any particular movement is a tissue on the opening angle of a joint. So, for example, when I lift my arm into forward flexion overhead, I want the anterior musculature, the pec major, pec minor, the anterior connective tissue, that should stop me from going farther. Or a better example is if you're lying on your back and I abduct your leg. I want the adductor group tissue to be the rate-limiting tissue preventing me from going farther. So the opening angle is the rate-limiting step. If the closing angle is the rate-limiting tissue, then I consider that joint to be functioning abnormally. So if I abduct the leg and I get a pinching in and around glute min, glute med area, I have a closing angle pain. Yeah. If I have a closing angle pain, I consider that joint to be abnormal. If I rotate a joint 360 degrees across its entire motion, I want to ensure that it's always an opening angle tissue that is 
restricting further motion. Now think of this in terms of injury. When you have a subacromial impingement, what are you actually saying when you do a NEARS test? So a NEARS test, you put in the arm into forward flexion, you get a positive result. What are you describing? Closing angle pain. When you have a positive Kemp's test in the neck, so you extend the neck back, what are you describing? Closing angle pain. When someone deep squats and they feel a pinch in their anterior hip, closing angle pain. So these are, it's an indication to me that the articulation is not functioning properly. Once the articulation can be made to function so that it's always opening angle restriction, right. now I have a joint that's trainable. You can't train through closing angle pain, you'll just make it pinch more. But if it's the opening angle, I can adapt those tissues to uh, elongate, to, to remold. I can adapt them to improve the functioning of the joint to expand their ranges. But if there's a closing angle pain, you have a problem. Okay. So that would warrant further examination that and would dissect warrant, out what's going on. Dissect out what's going on, and that would be, it would kick that person more into the therapeutic intervention before training interventions. Exactly. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so one of my biggest frustrations in the clinic have, has been how to gather clinical information from my physical exam that is not pain-focused. So apart from pain, what other outcome measures do you use to gauge, say, injury, dysfunction, call it whatever, um, but without using pain as an outcome measure, what else do you use to help gauge clinical dysfunction and then improvement as well? Uh, I agree with you. I think we should be looking for things other than pain, but I, I, I do want to point, point out, sorry, um, there is a... A belief or a, or a thought process now that we don't need to know the pain. We don't need to know what has the boo-boo. And I think that's a real problem. Yeah. So, sure, I do want to know, you know, on a grand scheme of things, why did this person get injured? What is the, the main cause? But the first thing I want to know is which tissue has sustained histological damage, right? Mm -hmm. And for that finding the pain source is useful, but not in and of itself. Just because something hurts, it doesn't tell me what needs to be done. So what I wanna do is first locate the tissue that has sustained the trauma, then I wanna define what histological process in that tissue is occurring. That's my first goal. If the histological process is inflammatory, then my first job is to control or guide the inflammatory process. If the tissue has been, um, I mean, whatever it is, whatever the histological cellular process occurring in the damaged tissue, I wanna know that first. Once I've figured that out, I need to do things in order to start the process of adapting that tissue to become more healthy. Now, if I take someone in pain and I already jump into assessment techniques that are looking away from the pain. So, for example, someone has Achilles tendinosis and I want to be a non-pain focused guy. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to do pain. I want to talk about function. So I'm going to have the person run. So you're looking at a gait, which is obviously going to be wrong because the person's in pain. So why would I want to do a functional assessment using tissues that have sustained damage when I know for a fact that damaged tissue leads to increased neural drive to the region, muscle, reactive muscle spasming, changing in neurological patterning? So what am I really doing when I'm assessing someone in pain when I'm looking things other than the pain? I'm assessing 
a false representation as to what's happening. So the police with the person with Achilles tendinosis, I could say, oh, look, you run with a limp. That's why you have Achilles tendinosis. Or it hurts to run normally because you have Achilles tendinosis. Right. So first job, find the boo-boo. Second job, define the boo-boo. What is the histological process? Battle that histology. Right. So once that's occurred, now you have to step back and you say, well, what is the... You know, what What should I go by now? And that's when pain becomes less of a, of a useful um, outcome measure, especially with regards to tissue work, for example. If when I see people poking around and something hurts, so they rub it. I always do this example at the seminars where I'll grab the person and I'll just go just distal to their lateral epicondyle and I'll take 20 random people, 10 random people. You push distal to the lateral epicondyle and you ask if it hurts, yes. It's going to hurt on everybody. People have areas of their body which hurt to push into. If you push into someone's uh, flank right around their kidney, you know, where people imagine it's the QL, when you push into it, it's going to hurt. Does everyone have spasm QL? No, they just have normal anatomy. So pain as an outcome measure for actual soft tissue treatment, it's a, it's a horrible outcome measure. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not useful at all. So if you're asking me what do I use with regards to palpatory technique, for example, for assessment, I don't use pain as an outcome measure. I don't use adhesions because I, I don't even know what someone means when they use the word adhesion. Like when you say the word adhesion, you're technically telling me that you can feel a single piece of collagen that has gone in a slightly altered direction, which is scar tissue. What's scar tissue? Normal tissue laid down haphazardly. So if you can prove to me that you can feel single pieces of collagen, which are nanometers in size, then I might believe you can feel an adhesion. But the fact is that no human being can feel anything that small. Does it say that we're feeling for adhesions? It's, it's, uh, we're, we're, it's, uh, it's an analogy uh, which people are taking too seriously. Right. Um, so I can't feel for that. Other people feel for things like, I'm just talking specific in palpation. People yeah. will feel for like, let's say bumpiness. Yeah. Let's say you take like a tool or something, you feel bumps. And they'll say, oh, that's scar tissue. Well, no, because what's the first layer underneath our skin? It's the subcutaneous fat layer. Right. And what's located there? Fat globules, which are held in a lattice work of connective tissue, mm -hmm. forming little balls, which would feel like little bumps upon palpation. Yeah. So again, you can't tell me that that's scar tissue versus just pockets of subcutaneous fat. So people will say, I'm feeling for ropiness. Well, muscles are shaped like ropes. They're supposed to be shaped like ropes. So to say that this muscle feels ropey is to say this muscle has normal anatomy. Right. So when you go through all of these outcome measures, um, you start to realize that all we can feel is force. So when I'm feeling for soft tissue, quote, lesions, that's another word that's very confusing, what I'm feeling for is aberrant forces. So I'm feeling for forces which are acting or counteracting the ability to create a movement. So when I'm doing palpatory assessment, that's what I'm feeling for. My definition of aberrant force, which is force within a normal range of motion, which is countering the direction of motion you're trying to achieve. Mm. And that's, that's really what I teach. Uh, when we teach my palpation portion of my seminars, it's... Part of it's locating, and the other part of it is translating tactile stimulus into decision-making processes. And 
force palpation is really the only thing we have to go by. It's the only, I mean, it's not the best thing. I wish I had an MRI kind of machine beside me that can point out these little imaginary adhesions that right. we, we think we're feeling, yeah. but we don't have that. Yeah. So it's, it's not a, it's not that I'm saying that's the best thing to feel for it. What I'm saying is that's the only logical thing we can feel. Yeah. So that's what I go by. Um, <laughs> other than that, uh, what other outcome measures do you, you, you're asking do I use to gauge injury? Um, if you're looking at the general whole of the patient, you're looking at their ability to produce movement that's pain-free. Yeah. Um, again, if you're looking at the outcome measure that I'm using on a moment-by-moment -moment basis for treatment, that's a useless outcome measure because I'm not going to treat pain away. Yeah. Pain is way more complicated than people give it credit for. So I don't even think I treat pain. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people feel uncomfortable with this notion. But when somebody comes in with pain, I'm not saying I'm ignoring their pain, but I don't think what we do impacts pain directly. What pain is, what is pain? Pain is an accumulation of nociceptive signals in the brain, which is then compounded by family history, personal history, economic status, their mood, their sleeping patterns, their diet, their, their uh, you know, do they like their job? It's a very complicated thing. Exactly, yeah. I think that what we can do is allow people to move well. And when they move well, we have to make the assumption that they will likely feel less pain. So my focus is on performance of human activities versus pain. I don't even know if I answered your your question. Uh, oh yeah, definitely, because that's a lot. That's a lot more than I'll see other clinicians even interpret. Right, just to, to use outcome measures that are not just pain focused. Yeah. Like you said, pain is important. It's what people. It's what brings people into your into your clinic. Yeah. If you don't address it, then the patient might even feel neglected. Sure. But there has to be some yeah. bit of okay. You know what? We're going to put this aside. And we're going to see how are you actually clinically improving. Because otherwise, if you're if you're just going based off of that, we know there's multiple things that that affect pain then it's kind of like, well, what are we doing in the first place with our patients? Mm -hmm. Are we affecting anything? Yeah. And if you don't see them moving forward based off of what your standards are or your outcome measures are, um, then it's hard for you to gauge, okay, well, A, how good are you at what you do? And B, what are you even successful at treating? It's, 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 a, it's a legitimate question. I mean, yeah. it's a legitimate question that we don't, uh, we don't think about very often. But luckily, when you normalize articular motion, when you normalize tissue mechanics, on average, pain tends to go away. Mm -hmm. But that's not always the case. Yeah. And if there's a situation where someone comes in with pain and I address the tissues, I try to normalize them, I try, and they still have pain, I don't think that what I did was a waste of time. I think that I've benefited that patient in the long run it's just hard for people to understand, especially a patient, because they're in pain. And I like what you said. I always, I always uh, mention that if someone comes in and they say their left shoulder hurts, I don't care how much you think you understand the kinetic chain, which, by the way, I don't think anybody really understands, but let's pretend. I don't think care how much you think you understand the kinetic chain. Even if you can link that left shoulder pain to something wrong with their big toe on their right foot, you better not just rub and manipulate the big toe on the right foot. You better touch the, the pain. Because like you said, if you don't touch the pain, the patient doesn't understand biomechanics and the tensegrity continuum, etc. They, they, they know their shoulder hurts. 
So a lot of what we do, I think, is is manage the pain with, you can even call it placebo. Now, you say the word placebo, everyone gets all nervous. So you, you, what are you saying? We're all placebo. I'm proud to say that I utilize the placebo on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm proud to say it is because we know that, what is it, 80% of medicine is placebo. Yeah. Placebo is real. Yeah. It's, a, it's a real therapeutic intervention that fixes people. So I'm going to take as much advantage of that placebo that I can mm-hmm. while sticking into an evidence-based format. Yeah. So I don't like saying, oh, I'm going to cure you because I threw salt over your left shoulder. Yeah. I'm going to explain it in scientific terms, but I will explain how the tissue will heal so that that person's mind starts to heal for me. Right. And in which case, again, do we focus on pain? No, you don't focus on pain, but in that patient's mind, you better be concerned with their pain. Right. Now, yeah, I mean, placebo, it's, uh, the way I like to look at it is it's almost a, an effect that we don't yet understand. It's, kind of, it's, an, it's something that you do to a patient, and then all of a sudden you get a response that you weren't really expecting. Sure. But, I mean, we don't understand exactly what's going on in the human body yet. There's multiple dimensions that we don't know um, mm-hmm. that, are, that are existing within the, within the human body. Yeah. Um, so sometimes it's hit or miss, right? It's, and we just call that placebo at this point. Absolutely. You just, it's a catch-all term to, yeah. to describe ignorance that we have <laughs> yeah. versus uh, about yeah. the human body. Yeah. And what do we really know? I, I mean, I always I, I, I make this... I say this quite often, but if I ask, I have some patients who are neurologists, for example, and I, you ask them, how much do you really understand about the nervous system? And they're like, nothing. Yeah. We understand so little, it's embarrassing. Yeah. For whatever reason, you ask most manual therapists, and they have charts of exactly how the nervous system works, and this turns this on and shuts this off, and this comes on, and, da, 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 and it's like a grid, and it, they, it's, the body is like a, um, an electric circuit board, and I can play with the wires. And it's amazing because if you bring this information to a neurologist, they would say, what, what book did you read that I didn't read? Yeah. Like, wh- why do you know this information where my specialty tells me that we don't have this information, so where did you pull it from? Exactly, yeah. And I always find that, I find that fascinating. Yeah, it's actually kind of scary. <laughs> it's, you know what's scary? It's scary when people use scientific analogy as truths. For sure, yeah. So a good one is uh, the brain is like a computer. It, it, no, it's not. It, it, the brain came before the computer, correct? So if anything, our, our computers are modeled after our brain. And then from the brain as a computer, then if the brain is a computer, nerves are like wires. Right. Other than the fact that nerves are living biological tissues, which don't act anything like wires, other than they conduct things. But that's a, it's a really damaging thought process to say a nerve is like a wire, because then you hear things like, you know, there's a bone out of place pushing on a nerve, put the bone back into place, the nerve comes back online. Yeah. Well, no, because if something was pushing on a nerve, there's a, bio, there's a biological process of interneural scarring, interneural swelling that's occurring. So even if you remove the problem, it's not like the nerve just comes back online. It's not a wire. It's a living biological tissue. So we talked about earlier, if things were that simple, then every single human being would be very, very healthy. They'd be very, very healthy, and we would be able to fix everything, yeah. every patient that came through the door. And I'll tell you now, and, and by the way, I teach seminars where I you know, I teach people how to manage clients. I don't fix everything. Yeah. And I can say it you know, easily because I know whoever's listening doesn't either. And if we were actually like circuit boards, we would have a 100% success rate. 
all we'd have to do is find what muscles shut off, what muscles turned on, turn this on, shut that off, this comes on, everything's good. It doesn't happen. Right. Now, what about manual muscle testing? Do yeah. you feel that is a valid outcome measure to use? Or even comparing left to right? <laughs> I, I, I personally don't do any manual muscle testing. And, I mean, all I can do is explain my thought process because that's all we are. We're just thought processes. If you... Okay, first of all, if you manual muscle test, you have to make the assumption that you understand how muscles function. And the general idea is that muscles function by approximating origin to insertion. So the bicep comes from here to here, therefore I contract the bicep, it pulls this bone towards this bone, there you have the function of the bicep. Unfortunately, if you look at muscle research, you realize that the, the complexity of function for any particular muscle muscle far far is far greater than that basic a to b mentality if you look at a muscle what is a muscle it's it's simply a collection of proteins that are wrapped up in connective tissue so what's the function of the muscle the function of the muscle is not to pull on the bone technically the function of the muscle is to draw tension into these connective tissues which then propagates tension throughout the body which then remolds the body into certain positions. Every muscle is technically made up of thousands of little muscles in that regard because every muscle cell is in its own right an individual muscle which has an individual angle of pull which can distort the body in a very specific way. So when you think about the function of a muscle it's impossible to account for the thousands and thousands of little angular pulls that every single cell puts into contraction. So when you do a muscle test, you're almost bypassing all of that and you're assuming that a muscle is just a muscle, it just pulls A to B. And, I, and the research doesn't describe that. There's actually a recent um, research to, I can't remember the author's name, um, that's questioning the sliding filament theory as a whole. Because what they're finding is that the sarcomere, indeed, the actin and myosin crosses over one another during a contraction, but it also causes the actin and myosin to separate. So in other words, a muscle generates force in all directions simultaneously, not just pulling in a straight line. Okay, So the complexity of muscle function f is far greater than we give it credit for. Right. When we say, I'm going to muscle test you now, so I'm going to put this, mu this muscle in this angle because I'll test your supraspinatus. Even calling the muscle the supraspinatus, we have to understand that is just an anatomist attempt to simplify a very complicated thing. That's just a collection of thousands of fibers in a particular area which we give the name supraspinatus. But the body doesn't know what a supraspinatus is. It's not like somebody said, hey, we need something to lift the arm into abduction, let's add a supraspinatus. No, the body evolved with a necessity to be able to abduct the arm and therefore over a long evolutionary process, we developed proteins to guide the tension in that connective tissue to allow that to occur. But it's not like the supraspinatus was put there for the reason of stopping pressure at a specific angle. Okay, so now we go through muscle testing. So assuming that muscles are simple things, which they're not, but let's assume they are. How about the law of specificity? The law of specificity says that a muscle can be strong at one angle, plus or minus 10, 15 degrees, but anything past that and you cannot cross over the strength into those ranges. 
So if I'm testing a muscle at a very specific angle and I say, oh, you test strong, well, what do I know? I only know that you test strong at that angle. It tells me nothing about how the muscle's functioning. Um, so that's a long answer for, I personally don't use manual muscle testing because it, it doesn't fit into my how I work. It never gives me any more information. Mm. I can't account for my bias when I'm putting pressure on the person. Right. Like, how do I know that I'm putting the same amount of Newtons when I tested it before and after? Likely I'm lying to myself and I'm going to push less or harder during the examination and less during the... Re it's just, it's, it's basic human. That's how humans function. And I can't account for that when I'm assessing. So I just don't, I don't find it useful at all. Right. And to say that, oh, the supraspinatus is shut off. I don't even understand what that, I, I per, this is just my opinion, okay? I don't understand what that means. I don't get what you mean. It's shut off, what do you mean? It's shut off at that angle. It's it, what's, what's it? You mean these particular fibers that were drawing tension at that angle are shut off? Or do you mean the entire muscle decided to shut off? And if it was shut off, does that mean there's no neural tone? There's no neural drive? I, I just, it's a very confusing thing. I, I tend to go more on the, along the cautious side of we don't really know as much as we think we know. Right. So I try to be a little bit more uh, cognizant of that fact. Okay, so if, if say if you are testing an individual at the same angle, so say you do, we're, we're, I always test, say it's just shoulder abduction, I'm always testing a 90 degrees of shoulder abduction. I see right side is strong, like they can hold their weight but under whatever pressure I'm applying. Then left side, they just kind of fall down. Then I apply whatever intervention. And then all of a sudden, this person is now strong. Mm -hmm. Did the practitioner, you know, find a dysfunction and improve the dysfunction? Um, that's kind of what I, I, me personally, I'm trying to understand. If we're just going yeah. from left to right and yeah. always testing the same degrees, does that still take us in the right direction, or are we kind of just running in circles? I mean, who am I to say what the right direction is? I'll give you again. I'll give you my opinion. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no. If you go through the the history of scientific literature and you take a bird's eye perspective of this, this literature, one conclusion that you can count on is that no tissue, but no biological tissue, responds in any permanent way to a single input. So if you test the left side and it tests weak, mm -hmm. the right side tests strong, you do something, the left side all of a sudden tests strong. What have we accomplished? In my mind, we've accomplished nothing. Maybe we've temporarily caused a neurological response which caused the muscle to test stronger. Is that function going to remain there? Well, not according to all literature we've ever, you know, since the beginning of, of, of literature history, mm -hmm. all accounts would point to that is not going to be sustained. Now, can you say that you caused a temporary improvement that, that you can then utilize with rehabilitation efforts and exercise and and frequent inputs to try to solidify, perhaps. Um, but to say that the muscle tested weak and now it tested strong and now you're good, it, it, I, I, don't, I, I don't see how you can reconcile that with, with evidence-based practice. Um, similarly, and I do this example a lot, and again, just my opinion, but some chiropractors look at leg lengths, for example. Mm. And I, I give this example, you've probably seen it at the seminars, yeah. where I, I, I randomly bring someone up to the table and I put them on their stomach, and then I randomly get someone else to, and I check their leg length and I, tell, I get them to say which one's shorter, the right one is shorter. Then I'll get someone else in the room to say randomly pick me somewhere in the body and they'll say, you know, left earlobe. 
So I'll go play with their left earlobe. I'll go back to the bottom, and guess what happens to the leg lengths? They normalize. Right. It happens every single time. And then I say, pick a different area of the body. They say the right arch, zygomatic arch. So I tap on that for a bit. I go back down to the legs. What do you find? Leg lengths go off again. So what are we doing when we normalize leg lengths? Are we actually accomplishing a, you know, a long-term beneficial goal? Or are we just playing with the nervous system? Because the nervous system is very reactive, right? It, it, it reacts second by second. Everything you do, it starts to react. It starts to react. But those reactions don't get solidified until you run the same pattern over and over and over. That's when you start to get synaptic pruning and you start to get uh, uh, neural discharges occurring on a regular basis which mm. strengthen the synapse and the movement gets there, the, the, whatever neural path gets strengthened. But it doesn't happen right away. Not even neural tissue will adapt to a single input. It might give you a response that you like, but that response is going to be short-lived. Mm. And that... I mean, the more therapists start to get their training certificates and start to train clients, the more that should solidify that in their mind. When you're training an athlete, you don't expect that athlete to see something being done and have it 100% right away. Or you don't expect them to get stronger when they lift a weight once. You have to get them to do that input over and over and over and over again to convince the body to adapt to that input. The same thing with tissue work or with with manual therapy. If someone has a problem, you think that the you know the right bicep has tension, and you start to treat the right bicep. If you think that you're going to treat away that tension, or you're going to break apart the adhesions, or you're going to normalize the tissue right away, you're going against every single piece of evidence that has ever been put out into the the, the literature soup. Um, so. I don't even remember the original question, but it's muscle testing. Yeah, I, I, I uh, it just doesn't it just doesn't drive with it with with my interpretation of the literature. Okay, so moving on onto the topic of pain, uh, should soft tissue be painful? So does the stimulus you impart on, onto a tissue need to be at a specific threshold for an adaptation to occur? Because when I'm using your technique, I'll often get patients say, you know, I really don't feel anything at all or much, if anything. Um, does does the soft tissue technique need to, does the patient at least, need to feel any bit of a stimulus for an adaptation to occur? I mean, I think that you'd have to feel something. I, I, I wouldn't say that it has to be painful, nor am I thinking about pain. You know, I'm not thinking about inflicting pain in order to achieve a desired result. Um, I think that if you have the interpretation of soft tissue function or the, the function of soft tissue to be breaking something like I'm my intent is to break up scar tissue or break up an adhesion we talked earlier about scientific analogies and I think that's a very dangerous one mm-hmm. uh, because you're not really breaking soft tissue um, more likely than than breaking soft tissue what we're doing is we're imparting forces that m- will hopefully start an adaptive process which then can be followed up by specific directional exercise to reinforce the message. So rather than thinking about doing soft tissue with the intent on breaking um, adhesions or whatever you want to call them, I like to think of soft tissue work more as cellular communications. So cells communicate with each other and with their environment by forces. I always say that force is the language of cells. And what I mean by that is that 
cells don't speak any other language other than force. So when forces are, are physically put into cells, the cells are going to adapt to those forces um, by mechanical means in whatever way they adapt to them. It seems that the if you put forces progressively into tissue, the tissue will adapt along the lines of the stresses that we, the direction of the stresses we impart. So I think more importantly than you know creating a pain effect, what we're doing with soft tissue work is we're providing a force stimulus that has directionality that can begin the process of remolding. So a better word, I, I know my system's called functional range release. I don't really like the word release because again, it's an analogy. It's one that people understand and they recognize, which is why we use that as the, the term. But I think the word remolding is much more accurate with regards to what we're doing when we're doing soft tissue work or when we're doing training. Um, we're putting force into tissue and we're asking the tissue to adapt to the force. Going back to my idea that no single input will cause lasting effects, um, I don't think that when you're, and you're talking about creating adaptations, I don't think soft tissue work alone is enough to create any substantial long-term adaptation to begin with. I think that soft tissue work can help the process of adding directional inputs to cells in order to begin this remolding uh, process. But unless your soft tissue work is followed up with very specific force generations by way of internal force generations, internal load generations, contractions, rehabilitative exercises, I don't think soft tissue work will accomplish anything independent of that. Right. So for me, um, doing soft tissue work or doing doing training, it's it's all the same. It's all it's all the application of force with the allowance for adaptation. And soft tissue work allows us to be very specific with our force message. I want the forces right into this area along this specific line of tension to begin the the remolding adaptive process right there versus a contraction which is a less specific input. But the input's the same. Force is force. The cell doesn't know the difference. The cell just feels force. People often question me on that. They say, well, how do you know that force is the language of cells? Well, it's because every piece of scientific literature, again, from the beginning of scientific literature, has shown that cells respond to forces. That's in any biological tissue. You can look in the plant world and you realize that when you want a plant to grow a certain direction, you have to tie it down so that it grows in that direction, i.e. you have to put a repetitive force input in order to allow adaptations to occur for that particular force input that you're putting in. So science, or, um, soft tissue work for me is the, the beginning of a communication that we're having with the cells in the language that they understand. And that message has to be followed up with rehabilitation, with training interventions, or the message gets lost. If the body is anything, it's, it's, it's responsive to whatever you want to do. If you put force into the body, it will respond to it. It will adapt to whatever load you put in over time. It's very stubborn, and that's what the literature shows us. The body will adapt over long periods of time with, with repetitive inputs. Mm. Now, I, I always like to discuss mechanisms behind therapeutic interventions. So think of this more as kind of like a think tank discussion. So um, like 
for me, the more we learn about therapeutic interventions or the mechanisms behind them, the better that we think or better, better we can become at predicting what an intervention can have or what kind of effect an intervention can have when a specific dysfunction or problem walks through, the, walks through your door, right? So first one we can start off with, uh, if you're looking at your clinical toolbox, uh, is taping. So taping is, you know, often used as for multiple different reasons, uh, mixed, mixed uh, things in the literature just about what, what taping actually does. Um, but do you find taping useful? What do you find taping, taping useful for, if anything? Um, or should we be taping ankles after injuries? Uh, should we be taping patients to improve posture? So what are your thoughts on just taping as, uh, in general? I think you, you touched on something really important in the uh, beginning part of that when you t- talked about understanding the mechanism of the therapeutic intervention. Um, and when you ask for, you know, do you use this, do you, do you use this, do you use this, you always have to fall back on what is your understanding of the histological process which that particular intervention potentially and logically will cause. So a lot of the research that we do, it's, it's, it's done in a very strange way. So for example, if you're doing research on a modality, you'll say this many people have whatever, patellar tendinopathy. You do laser, this many people got better, this many people didn't get better. And then you have to infer what what's happening. So we're going to give a logical explanation as to what the mechanism is. But just knowing that the laser helped is not near enough for you to make a clinical decision as to when and why to use laser. Right. You have to have a logical, evidence-based, or I should say evidence-guided thought process as to what laser, laser could accomplish. Now, what are you basing that on? You're basing that on indirect evidence because as a manual therapist, we have very little but in the, in the way of direct evidence for therapeutic interventions. So what we have to rely on is using indirect evidence in order to build a strong evidence-based argument. So for something like taping, if you apply tape to the surface of the skin, there is a layer between the skin, which we'll refer to as the fascia superficialis, so the skin and the underlying fascial tissue with the subcutaneous fat. And then that sits on top of the fascia profunda, which will be our muscles wrapped in the epimesiums, for example. So because that layer has a certain degree of wiggle room in between, so if you grab, if you just touch your arm and you move the skin, you can see that there's a great deal of wiggle room between them. If you're applying tape to the skin, to say that you're affecting the mecha- the mechanical function of the underlying muscle, I can't come to terms with that logically because all you can hope to do is affect the wiggliness of the skin on the underlying tissue. So if you ask, do I use taping? Um, I'll answer for certain things, um, but not for other things. And that's based on experience with it and, and realizing, you know, does this work or does this not work? And also based on logical interpretation. Do I think that I can put a piece of tape on someone's body and hold things in place? No, absolutely not. And I think the literature is pretty clear on that. Do I think that having a piece of tape on the outside of the body somehow increases neurological awareness of that area and therefore might alter nervous system activity? Yes, and I think the literature is pretty clear on that. There's a study showing that um, 
the the center of balance can be dramatically improved just by lay, pretty much laying a piece of regular old white tape uh, along the foot. So I do think that there's something to say about how it might create a heightened awareness of the nervous system for a particular area. Um, with regards to posture, for example, posture is not something that I can cor correct with treatment. Maybe maybe people claim they can. I, I've never seen any, any um, piece of evidence or pieces of evidence that you can string together which would logically make me conclude that I can alter someone's posture by something I do to them. Posture is more of a a management of neurological drive. So if you want to be held in a certain position, you have to increase neural drive to tissues that would hold you in that position, which am amounts to constant reminders to maintain a particular position so that that neural path is fired over and over and over again. So do I think that tape might be useful in that regards to train posture? Sure. Do I think the tape is correcting the posture? Absolutely not. Um, if you put a piece of tape on someone's skin, it might wrinkle the fascia superficialis, but it will not wrinkle it and cause a wedging to the degree that it will cause a significant mechanical input in the underlying profunda covered tissue. Right. So from a mechanical standpoint, I think it has no usefulness. And that's just, again, based on my personal interpretation of a bird's eye view of the literature. Um, so yeah, there's there's some indications and there's some indications it's not effective. I believe the literature is pretty clear that post ankle sprain, for example, you should probably wear a brace for at least a year afterwards. Um, whether that brace is brace or taping, I don't think it makes a difference. I think it's just stimulus there that heightens neurological awareness. I think that's the key. Right. Now, what about uh, static stretching? So the next tool. Um, what do you think we were actually doing when we are doing static stretching? Are we actually lengthening tissues, or, or what? Do, what do you find the usefulness of static stretching for? Well, see that that's a, an area where we actually do have quite a bit of guidance via the literature. And and one thing I can tell you, uh, pretty confidently at this point, at least if things change, is that um, stretching doesn't alter the length of muscle. Um, <clears throat> literature demonstrates that even when we increase ranges of motion available across an articulation, it's not because muscles got longer, it's because we've created a neurological tolerance. So what stretching seems to do is t demonstrate to the nervous system that the safety measures they have in place, i.e. the stretch reflex threshold, is too sensitive. So I always say that in any seminar that I teach, I tell people, everyone in the room here has the potential to do the splits. You just have to convince the nervous system of it. So your tissues can elongate far past what you think your range of motion is. It's just that your nervous system dictates how much of that motion you have access to, which is why in FRC, we, we emphasize that if you want to improve ranges of motion, you're playing a game with the nervous system, not necessarily altering the physical makeup of the tissues. That might occur as well, but more importantly, you're having a communication with the nervous system convincing it that further ranges are safely attainable. Now, when we static stretch, people become more flexible. I think we know that. It takes a lot more time than people think it does. Like, when if you spend any time dealing with dancers or dealing with gymnast populations or performers, when you 
look at their stretching routine to increase, let's say, hamstring flexibility, you realize that it's probably way more intense than an average person is going to want to do to increase flexibility. So when you give, when people give exercises, you know, hold this stretch for 10 seconds, you're, nothing's going to be accomplished with 10 second stretches. It, it's, I mean, we know that. We know that because when you watch an athlete, a martial artist who tries to increase ranges of motion, it's a long, difficult process. It can be made easier, which is a lot of the re, a lot of FRC techniques that we use make it easier, but it's a lot more than just a 10-second stretch. But the literature does dictate that even when you're more flexible, that's just because your nervous system is allowing it to occur. It does not have anything to do with lengthening tissue or seemingly has nothing to do with lengthening tissue. Do I use static stretching? Um, Yes, there is a component in FRC of static stretching, but I'll always say that any range of motion that you gain, you have to solidify that range by ensuring proper neurological control of it, as well as proper tissue adaptation to improve the resilience in those newly acquired ranges. That's why I think things like yoga, when you're you're you know you're stretching, holding postures. It's very good for you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say someone don't do yoga, but I will say that yoga is not enough. Yoga doesn't, well, it, it does, but not as effective as, as you can. It doesn't teach the nervous system how to actually own the newly acquired ranges. And that's necessary if you want to incorporate those ranges into functional movement patterns. And uh, lastly, what, a, uh, what would be your thoughts on uh, mobilizations and then segueing that into the chiropractic adjustment. Um, what do you think we are doing with the mobs and the adjustment? Where does that fit into your um, your clinical decision making? Um, I think that the the uh, I, I, I manipulation. I think that uh, manipulation has an immediate neurological effect. I think we're we can be confident with that effect. Um, but drawing back to what I said before, do I think that that effect is long lasting? Absolutely not. I don't think any effect is long. I think every input you put into the body has to be repeated multiple times for there to be a long, uh, any, you know, prolonged effect. So when I manipulate, am I going to manipulate for the immediate neurological effect? Possibly maybe to get a little pain reduction or, you know, a decreased nociceptive output or something along the lines Maybe there's some um, anti-inflammatory uh, components to manipulation. Uh, there's some research, for example, that thoracic spine manipulation can increase, uh, can decrease inflammatory mediators. Uh, but for, for my purposes, I, I take the mechanical um, function of a manipulation, which is this is not moving. I need it to move. It's a very basic way to think about it. But I think that, that from what we know about manipulation mobilization, we can't speak in very specifics because we just don't have those specifics. So for me, if something's not moving, I'm going to make it move. Do I prefer the manipulation over the mobilization? Well, technically, if you look at how connective tissue responds to force inputs, you would have to make the conclusion that the force inputs have to be held for longer periods of time than we give credit for. So when you do a, a manipulation which is you know under a second amount of force input, I think that that's a very weak um, input in the long run. I think if you can put someone into a mobilized position, hold the tissue, hold that stimulus for longer periods of time, for somewhere in and around two minutes or greater, because that seems to be where the literature points to with regards to how long force has to be applied before the connective tissue system begins to respond, I think mobilization is better for that. 
in certain situations, it's, it's not possible to mobilize. The pain levels are too high. It's too acute. There's too much swelling, in which case I'm going to go to a manipulative approach, um, probably followed up by a mobilization approach later on in the treatment plan. So I don't, uh, I don't choose based on what I like better or what my profession dictates is more important. I choose based on what is the histological cellular process that I'm trying to induce with my treatment. And that's how I look at all training, treating, everything is what is ultimately, what am I communicating with ultimately? The cells. I am trying to induce cellular change, beneficial cellular change. So everything that I do has to be done, decided upon with a background thought process of how does the cell interpret the message that I'm applying. All right. Well, Dr. Spina, I want to thank you once again for taking the time out to have this chat with me today. It's always a pleasure learning from you and listening to your perspective. So thanks again. For the listeners, to learn more about Dr. Andrea Spina or to find the list of his upcoming seminars, just check out functionalanatomyseminars.com. Thanks again for listening and be sure to like the Movement Science Facebook page so you can receive updates about future podcasts.